The likelihood of getting all of them to mismatch is some number that has no equivalent on Earth. It's a number called a Googleplex, which is 10 to the 20,000th, which is probably something of the order of how many stars there are in the universe or something. It's not a number that is rational or can even be comprehended. That quote is not in reference to the likelihood of Ronald Trimboli's DNA test supporting his guilt. It's a reference to the DNA test excluding him as a suspect. That's right, excluding. But how could that be? Wasn't it 54 billion to one supporting a match? What happened? To get you there, we have to talk about DNA. Juror John Skiles heard a lot of talk about DNA at the trial. We had probably, I'd say probably a minimum of at least a solid week or more of just these experts being flown in, trying to explain how all this DNA testing stuff works. And so there was a lot of that stuff that just kind of went over, you know, at least went over my head. Uh, but, you know, but it was very, you know, very interesting to, to listen to these experts explain, you know, how it worked. John's not kidding. I have volumes and volumes of trial testimony transcripts from different academics, all with many degrees and professional commendations and associations. So much volume, in fact, that it's easy to get confused wading through it. So here's a simple explanation. Ronald Tromboli's DNA was tested using two different methods. The first method is a DNA print test using a restriction enzyme. A restriction enzyme cleaves or severs DNA molecules. In the DNA print test, it was a restriction enzyme known as PST1 and a process known as gel electrophoresis, where molecules are separated by being pushed by an electrical field through a gel. The important part to understand about this is that the final results are interpreted by looking at bands looking for matches. That's how this process and the information from it visually presents for analysis. So in this case, physical evidence from the crime scene, like semen stains from the bedspread found near Danielle's body, are compared to DNA from a blood sample from Ronald. Witness for the state C. Thomas Kasky, chairman of the Department of Genetics at Baylor College, said there was a clear match, and moreover, no technical error would lead to a false match. Kevin McElfresh, assistant director of the Forensics and Paternity Labs at Life Codes, who did the DNA testing, said on the witness stand, the bedspread stains matched, and the very essence of the analysis is visual. I mean, the human eye is the best discriminator that exists. Kevin repeated the 54 billion figure. Prosecutor Alan Levy asked, do you know of anything or any way that, through this entire technique, short of just a malicious falsification of evidence, that could cause a false match of eight alleles in four different probes? Kevin McElfresh replied, there's just no way, I mean, probably including maliciousness, to create a false positive over four probes. Life codes just put together a deal and they were doing mostly uh, family, you know, identification for paternity testing. And, uh, and then they got off into this <laughs> other forensic area. And literally um, their protocols were, were flawed. Uh, the way they did this test was flawed. What is Bill referring to? Well, a critical witness for the defense was Dr. Moses Samuel Shanfield. Dr. Shanfield was laboratory director of a genetic testing company based in Atlanta. He was a graduate of the University of Minnesota, Harvard, University of Michigan, 
and a research geneticist at the University of California Medical Center. Dr. Shanfield had also run a paternity testing lab in Milwaukee and was a fellow of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. One of my, my lead expert, Moses Shanfield, he, um, he was with me the whole way. I mean, just, we just lived together for a year. We traveled all around the country, going to these different labs and putting together different theories of how we could attack this DNA, because we knew that was going to be the biggest problem we had was the DNA. But uh, turns out that we at least disputed, we proved that he was not the contributor of that particular semen stain that was found on the, on the bed. but. More importantly, I, what I was trying to explain to everybody is, I think even at, even in those days, DNA could be used in a, as an exclusion tool, but it, it shouldn't be used as an inclusion tool because we just didn't have enough. The population genetics that LifeGoes was using was the blood specimens of 50 FBI agents. Well, that's hardly a cross section of the. We know now that you got to have, you got to have, depending on the region that you live in and the region where this happened, you got to have blood types of all kinds of people. It's it's all changed since the early days, and um, so I always thought it could be used as a tool of exclusion. I'm I'm pretty comfortable the way it's being done now, though, as being admissible. I mean, being pretty accurate, uh, but it's a test, and anytime that you say test, that means that humans are doing it. Now, what's what the results are shown are. are pretty solid, but do you know whether there was any cross-contamination? Do you know whether it was, was loaded right? There's a million human errors that could enter into it. This still could call all of it into question. Trial testimony indicated that LifeCode's population base they were using might have grown by the time of the third trial into the hundreds. But either way, Dr. Shanfield testified to clear issues between their protocols and stated results in this case. In his testimony in the third trial, Dr. Shanfield discusses how he looked at LifeCode's criteria for establishing a band match. The issue is, these bands that are used to match DNA vary in size. When you have data that has variance and you're trying to declare a match, there has to be a standard deviation that is acceptable to still declare a match and a standard deviation after which it's no longer scientifically valid to declare a match. Standard deviation is a measure of how dispersed the data is in relation to the mean, or more simply put, how spread out it is from the average. Life codes allowed for three standard deviations, according to Dr. Shanfield's testimony. And this was also published. It was published in an article in the American Journal of Human Genetics. In that article, which Shanfield quoted in his testimony, it said anything beyond three standard deviations is different, meaning not a match. By Dr. Shanfield's calculations, what life codes had called a match was in one instance, 6.9 standard deviations and all four probes were beyond three standard deviations. That means not only was it not a match, it was an exclusion. Dr. Shanfield testified that comparing all of the evidentiary bands to Mr. Tromboli for this particular band here, he's greater than three standard deviations, so that there is no single piece of evidence in the report that matches Mr. Tromboli. With this information, Dr. Shanfield calculated the likelihood of Ronald Tromboli being the semen donor as impossibly large, the Googleplex number we cited in the opening of this episode, and that based on LifeCode's own criteria, there was no way of calling that as a match. Uh, the way they did this test was flawed, and uh, and when at the end of the day, when Katsky got on the stand and started testifying about one of the particular autorads, that clearly exonerated Ron. I mean, it clearly did. 
Um, he said, no, nah, it was just a, a band shift. And that was, I, I showed you what those look like. They look like x-rays is what they are. So you, literally the infancy of DNA in, in the forensic world. But what he, the, a band shift was an anomaly that was sometimes seen in these things where, where the allele would shift a little bit on the line. And he explained it as just a, a band shift. It, that's what it was. The state tried to counter this by saying the discrepancy was a band shift. A band shift in this context can be thought of basically like a glitch. It was a way of saying that the discrepancy wasn't because Ronald was not a match. It was just a band shift that would account for the problem. But Bill Lane had a way to disprove the band shift defense. Well, unbeknownst to the state or Mr. Katsky or anybody else, I had my doctor draw Ron's blood and I sent it up to Life Codes under the pretext of a paternity case and had them run that specific autorad, that, that specific site, so I could get that back and see if it was a band shift or whether it was clearly an exclusion. It came back and it was it was the same as, as the state had. It was not a band shift. It just excluded Ron as, as the donor of that DNA uh, and kind of hit him in the face with that right in the middle of the trial. I don't know what they thought about it at the time. I know they tried to recover. I don't think they ever really did recover from, from that standpoint. Dr. Shanfield testified on the stand that Bill's independent retest came back the same, meaning Mr. Tremboli is not a band shift. The retest was sent in by James Winston Geyer, director of a company called Genetic Design, which did paternity tests. Geyer testified he sent life codes a blind sample of Ronald Tremboli's blood. It was a blind sample because it was sent in under the name Ronald Tucker. That's that's the kind of stuff that a lawyer that's you know defending these kind of cases has to look at. Don't just take one doctor's expert opinion on what this was. Have your own and, and run your own test. You know, and the only thing I could think of that time is that was the most damaging loci in the whole spectrum that we were dealing with. So I was just ran it again under a fake name and under a fake. And how I got that done to this day, I don't know how. I mean, it took it took some help from one of the district judges at the courthouse that let me bring Ron down and we actually drew his blood in the jury room and had my doctor do it and package it up and send it up to life codes and they ran it and sent it back. I was I was really pleased the day it came in and it showed that he was excluded. So it was uh, it was that kind of stuff that really uh, piqued my interest of this whole case. Things that we could do like that. Because Geyer worked in paternity testing, he'd had numerous interactions with life codes and testified of three separate incidences where life codes essentially waffled on their own result. In the first instance Geyer testified to, a man was first determined to be the father of a child, and then when life codes was asked to duplicate the result, a second test showed they excluded the same man as the father. When asked about this, according to Geyer's testimony, life codes attributed the mistake to a gross error in the laboratory. The second instance, was first an exclusion of paternity, then an inclusion. This error was attributed to a problem with the electrophoresis. And there was a third incident of a similar nature, according to Geyer's testimony, that actually went to court in Florida. I always thought the bigger issue is how could they, how could the state explain that one person committed all three of these murders? And so that's kind of where we, the trial of the case was for me, is trying to explain that to the jury. In an echo of some testimony from the second trial, defense witness Vincent DeMeo, chief medical examiner of the crime lab for Bayer County in San Antonio, 
would testify that the stab wounds on Renee were consistent with one knife, but it was not the same knife used on Danielle and John. So the defense had, seemingly, fairly substantial counterarguments to the Life Code's DNA result and the idea that one person committed this crime alone. The single killer versus multiple killers question was a point of concern for the jury, according to juror John Skiles. That was one of the things that, you know, we all kind of had a tough time with was, well, how did he subdue a 16-year-old boy and then these two girls? And, and you know, we, of course, you, you know, you go through all kinds of scenarios in your brain, but, you know, it was brought the fact that, you know, even though it doesn't seem very plausible, but you could see it potentially be, you know, being this way was, you know, if he were to whoever it was, whoever, you know, if it was somebody else that murdered the girls, whatever, if they were holding even just one of the girls, you know, at knife point or something, and then they had, you know, one of the other ones, you know, tie the other one up, you know, his hands or whatever, you know, until you get, you know, I mean, you know, that was some of the things that we, you know, we discussed that, you know, that we felt like, okay, well, that, yeah. Could that happen? Yeah, that's, it's, it's a possibility. I mean, you can't discount it, you know, completely. But if, yeah, you're, you're right. We, we, we all, all the jurors, from what I remember, we all were like, well, how did one guy subdue these three teenage, you know, kids? You know, because I mean, you, well, you think that, well, surely they, they would have, you know, fought back in some manner, you know, but then again, if you if, if you're you know holding some, one one of them at knife point, the others a lot of times they'll just you know cave and say, okay, don't hurt them, you know, we'll do whatever you want. So I mean that that's that's one of the scenarios I know that we talked and bantered around, you know, back and forth. But there was one more expert witness, and his results were more difficult to argue against. That was forensic serologist Edward Thomas Blake. Edward Blake used a different technique, PCR analysis. According to the National Institute of Health, PCR is a very sensitive technique that allows rapid amplification of a specific segment of DNA. PCR makes billions of copies of a specific DNA fragment or gene, which allows detection and identification of gene sequences using visual techniques based on size and change. From Dr. Blake's analysis of a vaginal swab of Danielle, he found a DQ nominal type of sperm that matched Ronald Tremboli's sperm type. And this type matches, according to Dr. Blake, approximately slightly greater than 3% of the Caucasian population. Today in America, there are 231 million Caucasian people. Let's assume approximately half are women for the sake of this analysis and say that it takes us to about 3.4 million people. But using this same argument, it also excludes 112 million people. It's not proof that Ronald was a semen donor, but it is compelling evidence for a jury to hear, certainly. And arguably, the most compelling evidence against Ronald in this case, depending on who you ask. But this won't be the last time we hear Dr. Blake's name. Dr. Blake re-enters this story after the third trial in an unexpected and once again compelling way. We'll get to that in the next episode. What was juror John Skiles thinking as all this was going on? Well, I'll be honest with you. <clears throat> like I said, I didn't understand a lot of it, and I don't think a lot, most of the jurors did. I, I did. Now, when it came to when we had to factor that in with all the other evidence that you know we were presented with, no, it wasn't the. It wasn't definitely wasn't factor. I don't think for anybody. Um, but I think with that on top of the other evidence that we were presented with, I think 
we felt like, okay, well, you know, with what we've got here with the other evidence, and then you add that on top of that, it's, you know, it was pretty compelling. Like I said, there was, oh my gosh, I mean, there was so much evidence introduced and stuff. And, you know, of course, when you're trying to, you know, siphon through all this stuff and trying to make heads or tails out of it, and, you know, and figure, you know, you know, well, how much of a factor does this evidence pose, you know, versus this versus that, you know, and then the, of course the different things that the uh, defense, you know, presented as well. And, but yeah, I would definitely say it was, there wasn't any just one thing, but it was just a, you know, conglomeration of just all of it together and just how the whole process, as far as, you know, from the time that he was, you know, going into, you know, to, to the house, you know, just the timeline and just how everything went and then and then just with you know other evidence that had been presented as far as um you know mr tromboli trying to remember i thought there was some evidence that was uh or witness had had said that you know there had been some inappropriate interaction you know just some things that just you know definitely you know raised some red flags it was remarkable to me to speak to John after having spent so much time talking to people connected to this story and reading trial transcripts. It was very clear that even decades later, the prosecution had made a very strong impression on John so far as Ronald's supposed sexual deviancy. But apart from the testimony of Joanne's neighbor, Karen, I just was never able to find a ton of evidence supporting that idea. Quite the contrary, everything I learned, heard, and read about Ronald suggested he was a former ladies' man who had reformed and settled down with his wife at the time, D.C. John didn't recall, conversely, much at all about alternate suspects like Dennis Mason or the man we're calling Eric, or the timeline that other witnesses had seen the girls alive well after the window of time that the state had previously suggested Ronald committed the murders. Any amount of this information that made it past objections to reach the jury, it did not leave a big impression on John. And of course, and this is one thing I've never understood, but I know that there was at least once, maybe twice, I can't remember for sure, where the the jurors had to be, you know, had to leave the courtroom because there was some evidence that, I don't know, I can't remember if the prosecution was trying to present something and the defense was not having it. And then so we had to, you know, uh, leave for a little while. And that's one thing I've never understood that if there's evidence out there why jurors are not privy to all the evidence, you know? So I, I don't know, I've never understood that. We tried to figure out a way to get all that in because I, I think it was wrong. I think today it probably wouldn't be admissible, but back then um, you couldn't try somebody else. You had to, you had to defend your client. Uh, it's, it's, we've gone light years away from that theory now in the law. <clears throat> now in the law, the courts and the, and the rules and. Uh, everything have gone out of the way to make sure that the defendant has every opportunity to prove his uh, his not guilty. You don't have to prove your innocence, but make sure that the state you know meets their burden of, of proving you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And because of Michael Morton Act and all the Brady issues, all those things that we didn't have back then, you know, that today I think it would have been a different result. I think trying that case today, all of that would have come in. When it came time to deliberate, some of the jury did lean towards finding Ronald not guilty. As far as the deliberations, I know that when we first, you know, the case had been, you know, both sides had presented and they gave us the case to deliberate. Um, I know that there was a, 
you know, we, we, we took a vote right off the bat just to see where we were at. And, uh, and from what I remember, like I said, don't carve this in stone. I believe there was at least maybe two, possibly three jurors that were, you know, unsure that they, you know, they weren't 100% sure that they wanted to vote guilty. And then of course, you know, you know, the rest of us that had had, decided, had already decided that, yeah, we were gonna vote guilty um, after we had deliberated and everything. You know, of course, then we, we said, well, is there other, is there any evidence that you need to, you know, look at again, or do you have any questions, you know, um, you know, because I always tell you, you know, if you have any questions, you know, send it to, to you know, the bailiff, whatever, and, you know, and then we'll get an answer back or whatever. And so there, and I, and I cannot remember, it seemed like there was something as far as the evidence that uh, at least one or a couple of the jurors wanted to go over again. I think I think the ones that were holding back, I believe that, you know, well, well, and I'll, I'll get to this one in here in a second. Uh, the last lady that was holding out. I mean, because the defense, I mean, they they definitely you know presented some things and said some things that you know might make you take you know take a second thought you know about it. Say, well, you know, that's yeah. I mean, that's that, that could be a possibility. So, I mean, I think the defense, I think they did a fairly good job of, you know, presenting their side and uh, and all that. But at the end of the day, I think the majority of us, the you know, the, except for the, the two or three that were holding out there at the very end, I think we all, you know, felt like, you know, well, you know, we want to make sure we get this right. I mean, because you're dealing with someone's, you know, you know, life, you know, where they're going to be spending the rest of their life. And so, I mean, it was, it wasn't taken lightly. And so I think, but I think that, at least for me, now I can't speak for any of the other jurors, but for me, just I had to go into it with, you know, I'm just, just taking the evidence at face value. And uh, just, you know, and once you kind of, you know, navigate all the different, you know, scenarios and this and that, and then at the end, you know, at the end, you know, I just felt like, you know, the, the prosecution did a good enough job to, you know, to convince me, you know, that he was guilty. But I think the, the others, and, and I was going to tell you. Then after after uh, we took another we took another vote, and then uh, then one of the three then they came back and decided, okay, I'm going to go with guilty verdict. And then we had to take several different you know um, votes, uh, and then and then you know as as you know we deliberated and questions got answered and things like that. Then eventually we came down to where there was just one one person, uh, and I couldn't tell you what her name is, I couldn't remember anything, uh, but she was a little bit, a little bit one of the more elder jurors. And we asked her, you know, well, what is it that's, you know, what's the thing that's holding you back, you know, from, you know, being able to come to a guilty verdict? Yeah, and when she was on her, and of course at the time, you know, of course them having that, you know, you know, baby and everything. And, and she, she just, she said at the very end, she said, well, I just, I feel really, you know, sad for these, you know, this family and, you know, that these kids are going to have to, you know, grow up without their dad and this and that. And she said, you know, she said, so I've got a lot of emotional attachment to it, you know, and we said, you know, so, you know, we fully understand that, you know, I said, but at the end of the day, you have to just look at the evidence that you're presented with and you can't, you can't base your decision on just, an, you know, just emotion. And so she, she finally, then we took, you know, took another vote and then we eventually, you know, all came, you know, to, you know, 
full, fully guilty on all 12 jurors. I asked John if he and the other jurors had all the information I do today at the time he was in the jury, would that have changed anything? Oh, I think without a doubt, I think that would definitely, you definitely have to take pause and consider that, and you know, consider that as a, you know, as definitely as an option. Of course, not being presented with that, you know, it's, you know, you can always look back and say, well, you know, this or that, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that, I think that definitely would have, you know, it definitely would have made you have to, you know, consider some other things. A lot, like I said, there wasn't, for, for me at least, there wasn't any just one smoking gun that just, that, oh, you know, that's it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Finally, after three trials, a verdict was reached. Lisa wanted to be there for the verdict, but had responsibilities that meant she couldn't be available 24-7. She had to leave early the day the jury left to go deliberate. She had to go pick up the two kids from daycare. And her grandmother had to remind her of this. <laughs> she was just caught up in the whole thing. You know, the jury's going to deliberate. My dad's life is on the line. My, I didn't want to leave. It's all on the line. She didn't want to leave, but she had to go. So I said, well, I'll stay. Surely the jury's not going to come back today. You know, I didn't think they could come back that quick. So she leaves. She her takes her grandmother and Anthony home. She goes to pick up. And I hauled ass to the daycare because you know, as a parent, if you're not there at five o'clock, it starts to cost money. <laughs> so, and I got there at, I think, 4.58. <laughs> so lucky me, I'm the one I got to stay. And I said, if anything happens, I'll call you. There's a pay phone there down the hall. So we sit and wait. The jury came back with a verdict. And this still sits in Lisa's gut today because she wasn't able to be there when it when it went down. Ugh. So everybody's called back into the courtroom. You know, even me. It's it's just surreal to listen to the verdict being read. So they go, the jury the jury foreman stands up, we reach the verdict, they they go through the motions and they come out guilty. Ron Tromboli is guilty. And his dad let out this big yelp, Lisa's grandfather, this, this big cry, this big yelp, and the judge told him to be quiet. And everybody was buzzing, and it was just a sad, sad thing. One side's clapping, the other side, everybody's crying. And uh, <laughs> Maybe it was good I that go, wasn't there. I go directly to the payphone. I go directly to that payphone, and I call Lisa. And soon it, the phone rang, the phone rang, and I did not want to tell her this. I mean, I was hurting. I mean, it was just so surreal. So she picks up the phone, and she didn't even say hello. She said, I heard. <laughs> when she walked into our apartment, our two, the two-year-old went over to the TV and turned it on. And just as he turned it on, it came out with the news break. Yeah, Breaking Jane McGarry. News. Yeah, Jane, Jane McGarry. NBC News back in those days comes on. Breaking news, Ronald Tremboli has been found guilty. 
Lisa went to her knees. I called. She picked up the phone, said, I heard. And then it was just silent. She didn't say anything else. So I said, I'll see you when I get home. So we hung up. So that was, you know, we'll talk more about that. But that was the day of the conviction. So after I hung up the payphone, I went up and I stood in with the reporters, all the TV reporters, the radio, everybody had their microphones out, the videos were rolling, and they lead Ron out of the courtroom. And he looks over to, right where I was standing, looks over to the reporters and said, I'm innocent. The local news captured that moment. The jurors know everything from innocent. And I was standing right there next with them as they did that. And then I went to see Lisa. That was the day of the conviction. So that was, that was a bad, you know, it's a bad day. So I drove to my mom's. I mean, it was very, like, I held everything in. The kids are in the back. Poor kids, they don't even know what's going on, right? So I get out and I laid on, the, when I pulled in, I just pushed on the horn and just let it just stay there. And then my mom... Because my mom is a character, too. Believe me, those two together were like, oh, my God. They're always something. They could have had their own reality show. It would have been great. So uh, <laughs> so she comes out the front door, and she, you know, she just so gets dramatic, and she just leans over the counter, and I just screamed at her. I just screamed. She's I just, on the second floor? Yeah, she's up on the second floor. I'm in the parking lot. And I just like, just screamed at her. Like, uh, I don't even remember exactly what I said. I'm trying to remember. I know I said something. Like, I think I screamed. When she told me you said you screamed. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> and I think I, and then I screamed like, why? Like, why? I kept saying, why? And then I got in the car and drove back home. You know, I like to make it a point that that day sits in her gut still because she wasn't able to be there when it happened. That all happened without her, and she feels a little empty. I do, but in when with I, that spot, but when, because, I know what you're saying, yeah. and I love you because I know that's. But really, when I think back, I think right now all I could think that I would made a spectacle of myself. And if you wanted to know what was going through my mind, everything that you could imagine if it was your father was going through my mind. He's not coming home. I'm not going to be able to hug him. He's not going to be able to, you know, give me away at, at my wedding. He's not going to be there for any, any other grandchildren. There's no vacations. There's no fun bar. Like, all that stuff was just going through my mind. It was like almost... You almost are burying somebody who's alive. It seemed like the end of the story. Three trials and four years later, Ronald Trimboli was found guilty of the murders of Danielle, Renee, and John. But nothing about this story is straightforward. Not even the ending. Because even after Ronald was convicted, Mark and Lisa were determined to exonerate him. So determined they'd redo his DNA test with the expert whose credibility was not questioned in the third trial, Dr. Ed Blake. In a way, it would be history repeating. Once again, the question of Ronald Tromboli's innocence or guilt 
would seemingly hinge entirely on a zero-sum game. A DNA retest that would either return a match and possibly hammer home his conviction, or return without a match and provide stunning evidence to argue overturning his conviction. What was the result? You'll find out in the next episode. In the Blood is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Midas, Caitlin Brown, and Dan Benamore. Lead reported and written by Dan Benamore. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by John Higgins. Original music by Derlis Gonzalez. Hosted by Ben McKenzie. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening. And subscribe now for future episodes.